Welcome to this Gastroenterology Learning Network podcast. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I am delighted to be speaking today to Dr. Ken Cook, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at Wake Forest. Hello, everybody. Good to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me to this session. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. And also, in this kind of point-counterpoint conversation today, we're delighted to have Dr. David Kenjemi, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to participate in this, uh, I think, exciting, uh, important podcast. Yeah, this is great, David. Thank you for doing this. So our topic today is one that affects everybody who practices in gastroenterology and also internists as well. And that's the overlap of gastroparesis and functional dyspepsia. Let's just kind of jump right on in. So Ken, again, thank you so much for joining this podcast today. Let's begin with you. How do you define gastroparesis and how common is it? We have to have a collection of symptoms, um, unexplained nausea, early satiety. Uh, There may be vomiting and even some bloating. And then patients may have uh, discomfort, even pain. And so it's those uh, very nonspecific collection of symptoms that in addition, we have a delay in the rate of emptying of a standard test meal. Uh, The standard one is an egg beater's meal. And if that meal is delayed uh, in the absence of a mechanical obstruction to the stomach, then that combination, uh, we will say that that makes the diagnosis of a gastroparesis. And I think that's pretty standard over the last number of years. But gee whiz, when you say how common is it, what is the incidence? This this still remains a problem. Uh, Some of the community-based, Mayo did a very nice job in Rochester looking at the incidence, and it's it's kind of quite low there. Brian, my analogy might be my own practice, you know, and every gastro who's listening probably has their own experience. And I see a lot of patients with unexplained nausea. And if I have 10 patients who have the symptoms that I just mentioned, and, and a, normal, a normal endoscopy, we'll talk about this later, two or three will have delayed emptying. It's really hard to say, you know, we know diabetics, you know, have it more commonly, but gee, is it 20%, is it 30% of them, and type ones more than type twos? There's a little more data there, but in the idiopathics and, you know, post-surgicals, I, it's a tough question. And so that's about as far as I can take it, you know, maybe, maybe you have a better idea about that, but, uh, uh, I think my own practice, uh, I wonder what the gastros uh, that are listening, what, what they would come up with. But that's my practical uh, kind of how common is it? No, that's a great answer. And I think just to uh, add on to that, I think part of the problem is that many of these patients with these symptoms never undergo gastric emptying scans to get the definitive diagnosis. And so some studies have shown maybe two to five million U.S. adult Americans, so pretty common. David, let's shift gears. So how do you define functional dyspepsia and how common do you think it is? First of all, functional dyspepsia is quite common, I would say, uh, much more than gastroparesis. And I think most would would uh, estimate that, that functional dyspepsia occurs in about 10% of the population, maybe 6 to 10%. But there are some studies that uninvestigated dyspepsia can occur globally as high as 20%. So it's a, it's a pretty common disorder. As far as diagnosis goes, uh, I think many of our listeners would know that we use the Rome criteria to diagnose functional GI disorders or disorders of brain-gut interaction. 
And so functional dyspepsia is clearly a, a functional GI disorder. And so according to the REM4 criteria, defined as one or more of the following symptoms. So bothersome, uh, postprandial fullness, early satiety, that big asterisk pain or burning, either one of those symptoms or, or multiple or even all those symptoms. And as with all functional GI disorders, uh, there can be no evidence of any organic uh, underlying cause. And there has to be some chronicity too. So, so the symptoms have to be present for onset of six months at least, and then present for the last three months. And then just to take it a little bit further, we know there are two subtypes of functional dyspepsia. One is the postprandial distress syndrome subtype, which is characterized by uh, meal-related fullness or satiety. And these symptoms have to be present technically uh, at least three days per week. And then there's the epigastric pain syndrome, which is characterized by epigastric pain or burning. Uh, and these symptoms have to be present technically at least one day per week. And I think categorizing though, not everyone fits nicely into those, one of those two categories. And some people actually have a, a mixed subtype, but sometimes categorizing patients into these subtypes can help um, when deciding treatment options. David, great. Thank you. And for our listeners, as you were hearing Dr. Kanjemi's initial explanation of symptoms, a lot of overlap with gastroparesis, and we're going to come back to that in just a second. So, Ken, you kind of touched on this, and you mentioned one or two etiologies of gastroparesis. Um, you mentioned diabetes and, of course, this large idiopathic group, but kind of tell us some of the other more common causes that would help our listeners. For so long, uh you would hear my patient can't have a gastroparesis because they don't have diabetes. And you know, now we know maybe a third, at least in our consortium, our gastroparesis consortium, where we collect many of these patients, about a third of our patients are actually diabetic, type one and type two. So certainly, you know, if you see a diabetic with those symptoms, your, your radar is certainly up. But, you know, still uh, 40, 50% uh, are going to be idiopathic. And then there's a, I think the next category is post-surgical. You know, we now tout that uh, fundoplication was the most common surgical cause of gastroparesis, probably when uh, the, maybe the vagus gets inadvertently nicked. Um, and in the idiopathic group, we really haven't cracked that nut. Um, I still think of uh, post-infectious maybe collagen vascular diseases get mixed in there if you're looking for a cause. And by the way, I should say, we always should be looking for a cause. You know, you just don't accept that there's gastroparesis. You say, why is there gastroparesis? Why is this happening? Gee, then I say, well, you're an elderly person. Maybe there's some Parkinson's going along. Uh, a few people who've had bad pancreatitis in the past, you know, it becomes a uh, many different ways to injure uh, the neuromuscular uh, wall of the stomach, uh, let alone the autonomic nervous system. I should add, I um, even look for people with POTS. I'm seeing more people with POTS. How is that related? Once you get into this area, the number of folks with different diagnoses that show up with these symptoms, these nonspecific symptoms, and uh, the late emptying uh, is actually kind of an interesting a differential diagnosis. So you got to think, uh, in my mind, pretty broadly. And if it's idiopathic, don't just maybe kind of look for other things. I, I always get a, a TSH. I, I just want to know, are you hypothyroid? Could there be something 
slowing your stomach down, even from a hormonal uh, cause. Um, so the big ones, of course, diabetes, the big category, idiopathic and post-surgical, but under that idiopathic, uh, I think it behooves us to think about, can we get a more specific diagnosis? That's a great teaching point. Not just you have it, but why do you have it and do a little bit of investigative work. And David, similarly, um, functional dyspepsia, we think of as a big category, but there are a lot of reasons why it can occur, at least in your experience. What are some of the more common reasons why people develop functional dyspepsia? I would start by saying that our understanding of, of functional dyspepsia is evolving. And I think we, we still don't quite understand functional dyspepsia entirely when it comes to an etiology standpoint. It's likely, it's a complex disorder. It's diverse. Uh, different factors are important for different individuals. So, you know, for example, some individuals may have a genetic predisposition. There's more work that, that needs to be done in that area. But I think for many people, it's probably some sort of an environmental exposure, whether that's a medication, an infection being a big category, uh, post-infectious, maybe tobacco use, psychologic stressors. And I think when you're talking about infection, uh, specifically H. pylori has been identified as a, as a risk factor. I think most would, would accept that. And H. pylori is, is, is important in, in terms of, of the diagnostic or the workup and, and treatment for H. pylori. So that's one in particular to keep in mind. But I think also, also it's worth mentioning how as a functional GI disorder, again, psychologic stressors, whether that's anxiety or depression or somatization, can certainly impact how people feel. It can augment symptoms, enhance symptoms, and likely plays a role for many patients in taking them from maybe mild symptoms to more uh, moderate or severe symptoms. Uh, I think it's important to, to, to keep in mind when you're, when you're seeing dyspeptic patients in, in clinic. Great, David. Thank you. Ken, I'm going to come back to you, and I, I wish you were in front of a chalkboard right now because I'd like you to draw out the stomach and the pathophysiology of gastroparesis. But since we can't do that today, could you kind of briefly explain, at least in your mind, some of the most common pathophysiologic processes that can lead to symptoms of gastroparesis and delayed stomach emptying? I love to do this. I'm always sitting around drawing stomachs, you know, <laughs> trying to improve on the uh, anatomy. And uh, so I, I briefly, I'll tell you, I was giving a, a, a grand rounds and there were quite a few, there, there, was a, there was an older surgeon in the audience. And I went through what I, I'm going to visually take you through uh, my view of the stomach neuromuscular function. And it's quite detailed. It's very complex. It's very sophisticated as gastros know. After my lecture, this um, surgeon comes up to me and says, you know, Dr. Cook, I really enjoyed your talk. I didn't have any idea the stomach was so uh, neurologically and neuromuscularly connected. We thought it was just a bag. I said, oh my gosh, you know, in the surgeon's mind over the years, it was a bag that you could cut on you know, pretty much however you wanted. So, so now erase that Erase that vision of a bag from your mind, please. Uh, all the gastros who scope and so on, they know all this anatomy. So I think that um, the pathophysiology, I start with the fundus. The fundus is there to receive our, our food uh, effortlessly. Uh, it relaxes thanks to nitric oxide and we receive the volume of food that we want to ingest. Then the corpus antrum is sort of the workhorse. 
especially the antrum, uh, where we mix and triturate and then very carefully, uh, literally in small aliquots, empty the chyme through the pylorus into the duodenum. And uh, this requires a very sophisticated coordination. It's such an important uh, event, of course, nutrition of the uh, body, of the organism, that it's paced. Um, where we know that uh, the stomach has a pacemaker. And when I tell patients this, and we talk about you know, how delicate this is, they begin to appreciate how they have to be careful about what they eat. But the uh, pacemaker we know now uh, is uh, run by the interstitial cells of Cajal. Uh, every fellow here has to know exactly what ICC means. I, I'm sure all the gastros out there know the pacemaker is uh, run by the interstitial cells of Cajal at a rhythm of three cycles per minute. Are you kidding me? Three cycles per minute. We, we breathe at 16, our, our hearts uh, run at, uh, I don't know, 60, 70. Um, everything is on a rhythm. The body is an amazing clock and the stomach runs at three cycles per minute. And then, you know, the pylorus. I worry about the pylorus a lot uh, in our patients. Uh, that is gonna regulate the rate of emptying. And, and so there has to be an antral, duod, an antral pyloral duodenal coordination uh, as we empty. And, and every one of these areas uh, then can misfire. Uh, the fundus fails to relax. Sometimes the fundus relaxes too much. Food is retained in the fundus. Food is emptied too fast to the antrum. Uh, there's a whole series of dysrhythmias, and uh, one of the, we'll talk about this later, but loss and depletion of ICCs is now uh, a really a, um, a high level of interest. It's the ICCs seem to be more depleted in gastroparesis with lots of dysrhythmias, because without the ICCs, you have less three cycle per minute and more dysrhythmia, and that occurs on a continuum. And uh, we're now understanding in two or three papers that people with FD or unexplained chronic nausea uh, have depletion of ICCs uh, that supposedly uh, appears to be not as, not as depleted as in gastroparesis. So where I, my discussion is gonna go is like these two entities are very closely related on the pathophysiology scale. And we have a lot to learn, of course, about the spectrum. But you know, if you don't have a good rhythmicity, then you tend to have weaker contractions. They may not be as coordinated. They may not be as uh, connected to the pylorus. And then is the pylorus in spasm? Is the pylorus clicking closed prematurely? Um, the pylorus now is a, another kind of interest area, as you all know. You know, do we want to destroy the pylorus uh, with a with a knife or a or a, or a sphincteratome, or is there something else we can do? We'll talk about that. But you see, if we appreciate the pathophysiology of these different parts, I think we begin to understand the symptoms because my patients all feel bad after they eat. You're supposed to feel very good we have to understand why they feel bad. Is it early on in accommodation? Is it later on in prolonged fullness and nausea? And uh, so I think as we learn more and more about uh, the pathophysiology uh, and the physiology of how the stomach works, 
as a sophisticated, highly tuned instrument, uh, we can begin to understand our patient's symptoms better. That was a, an amazing visual. So for all of our listeners, this ex exactly explains why we've all learned so much from Dr. Cook over the last 30 years and why he's contributed so much. And as I used to explain to the medical students at Dartmouth, I would give them the extra credit question on their tests. What's the smartest organ in the body? And the answer is, of course, it's the stomach. Because really, what organ tells you on a second-by-second -second basis its functional status, right? It's a sensory and motor organ. David, boy, hard to beat that. Uh, what can you layer onto this in terms of the complexity of the pathophysiology of functional dyspepsia? Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit more confusion uh, instead of clarity here. But so much like the etiology, I'd say the, the pathophysiology of, of functional dyspepsia is, remains incompletely understood. Um, so we, but there are a couple important processes that have been identified. So delayed gastric emptying being one, uh, it's been suggested up to 20 to 30% of patients with functional dyspepsia may have delayed gastric emptying. And that point in particular always confused me as a, as a medical trainee. Well, wouldn't that, can't, aren't don't these patients have gastroparesis and have they delayed gastric emptying and, and symptoms? And I think most experts would, would, would agree that when we say delayed gastric emptying and talking about dyspeptics, we're talking about mild delays in gastric emptying. But uh, and I think this gets into perhaps a later discussion about the overlap and now the, the whole idea that uh, that functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis may actually be the same sort of uh, gastric motor sensory disorder, uh, and they just occur along a spectrum. But also impaired gastric accommodation, as Dr. Cook mentioned, uh, it's it's been suggested that this may occur in up to 30% of patients with dyspepsia. We mentioned H. pylori previously as a risk factor. There's been some recent uh, data uh, suggesting that low-grade inflammation in the, in the duodenum, uh, uh, particularly with some studies showing increased eosinophils and mast cells, that this might be implicated in, in symptom generation. And I think, again, as a disorder of brain-gut interactions, it's important to, to, to mention visceral hypersensitivity, the concept of of abnormally sensitive nerve endings in, in the gastrointestinal tract and the altered communication that can occur between the brain and the gut. Uh, I think that's also a very important um, pathophysiologic mechanism. And then finally, um, within the last year or so, uh, Dr. Bill Che's group from Michigan just put out a, a study in the Red Journal showing evidence of epithelial bear impairment. So the, the so-called leaky gut or intest increased intestinal permeability, uh, a small study identifying uh, increased epithelial gap densities and impaired mucosal integrity using uh, confocal laser into microscopy specifically, which allowed for very close high magnification views of the, uh, of the duodenal epithelium. So I think that's a very exciting area. Um, that will, will likely be studied more uh, in detail, um, but could be a, new, uh, a newly appreciated um, mechanism. 
David, thank you. And I think it points out why research in this area is just taking off and how we're going to learn some really exciting things in the next few years, courtesy of both of you. In our next podcast, Dr. Kenneth Cook and Dr. David Kenjemi and I will discuss how the historic distinction between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis has become blurred.